Christ is risen. Risen indeed. Well, Brent, I I will apologize in advance. I'm sure this is the sermon that's going to bring it back to normal. (laughs) No, no (laughs) Oh, it's good to be here. I, I, I didn't think I was going to make it. I had a series of unfortunate flight events. Flew back from Praxis Conference in New York City on Thursday and then flew here and trying to get home and then trying to get back here. I had five consecutive flight delays or cancellations to deal with. So, sanctifying experience. <laughs> but I, it was, I was telling Pastor Brent and Pastor Janice about it. This is the first time I've seen security have to be called because of how upset the, the, all of the customers were at the, at the gate. So pray for Delta employees. <laughs> And and I just got notice, I'm supposed to fly tonight back to New York City for a conference, and I just got notice that this flight this afternoon is delayed, so (laughs) apparently patience has not had its perfect work in me yet, so you can can pray for me as well. And I'm starting to think that this is some kind of metaphor God is enforcing on me because of what I'm supposed to share today, which is about the difficulty and the complexity of our life with God. So it's hard for me not to wonder what's up with this. So let, let's, um, let's, oh, I should just mention this too. Please pray for Pastor Jonathan. He's terribly, terribly ill. And he got sick on Thursday and has been um, kind of at death's door for a bit. He got some stomach bug or something. And I'm starting to be suspicious too that Ed, Pastor Ed, and Pastor Jonathan were supposed to be here with me this morning. Now they're both sick <laughs> and couldn't make it. <laughs> so if he really is sick... Pray for them, all right? <laughs> Let's jump in. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for opening up for us. We do, we do pray for healing, not only for Bishop Ed and Pastor Jonathan, but for all in this world who are suffering today. We pray that this morning as we turn our ears to your word, that you will help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us and awaken in us the courage to respond. And everyone said, Amen. I, th- I think we're tempted to think of the Christian life as pretty neatly ordered, as relatively linear, laid out on a kind of perfect grid. If you, if you do this, you get that. If you don't do this, then you don't get that, or you do get what you don't want. In, in some ways, I imagine it like a, a child's puzzle. You know the puzzles that you first give to your, or the grandparents first give to the to children, where they... They have the, the pieces you pull out, but then there's the matching picture. So you know, well, this butterfly goes here where the butterfly is painted in this perfectly cut butterfly hole, right? And there are only three or four options, and the child is quickly catching up to it. I, I think many of us have been given a version of the Christian life that's basically like that. That if, if, you, if you read your Bible and you say your prayers and you give tithes and you come to church, then your life is a life of blessing, and, and you move from one victory to another victory, from one experience of light to another experience of light. But, of course, it isn't like that. And, we, and at some level, we all recognize it. At some level, we all recognize that this, this life with God and life with one another is endlessly complex. It's anything but linear. It is unmappable. It's not only not on a perfect grid. It's not mappable at all. And yet, I think there are ways in which, at the deepest center of ourselves we still are convinced that whatever's going wrong in our life must be because we took the wrong turn somewhere. 
we didn't do something we were supposed to do or we did something we weren't supposed to do and that's why we're getting this unpleasant result. And you, you may or may not be surprised to know that as a pastor and as a teacher, I get this all the time from people. And often it's people who are sophisticated enough to realize, I know this isn't true, but this is what it feels like to me nonetheless. Why is all of this happening to me? Because I don't see how I deserve it. I don't see how I've done anything that should lead to this. And so what I want to talk a bit about this morning is how just unmappable, how awkward and bizarre and strange and unpredictable our lives with God really are. And hopefully in ways that can settle down into the center of us and help us face this complexity, face the difficulties of our life with, with some calm and some, and some peace. You see this over and over and over in Scripture. I mean, of course, you do have Scriptures like Psalm 1 that says, you know, blessed is the man who walks in this way. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And cursed are those who walk in this way. And, and if, you, if you just see those Scriptures, it seems like it's pretty straightforward. Righteous people lead lives of blessing and live lives of peace, and unrighteous people live lives of difficulty and end in damnation. But of course, Scripture has a lot more to say than that. And even those seemingly straightforward texts become more complex the more closely you read them. Let's start with Isaiah 65. When I, when I turned to the lectionary this week and started reading through all the texts that are available, Old, Old Testament texts, Psalms, Gospel, and Epistle texts, they all speak to this. I'm not going to read all of them, but I want, I want to just read a bit of them with you. Isaiah 65, verse 1. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. Now, think about how strange that is. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, right? Now, we've all grown up hearing, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. And here's God saying, I was found by people who did not seek me. They stumbled into God in some way. They weren't seeking God, and yet, there he is. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. And so what he's picturing is, on the one hand, the Gentiles, who, ha who are not seeking God, they're not pursuing God, they're not desiring God, and yet they end up in relation with God. And his own people, he's calling them into intimacy, calling them into relation, and they are not calling on him in response. I held out my hands all day long, he says, to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and offering incense on bricks, who sit inside tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh with broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. God hates self-righteousness more than anything. He hates this holier-than-thou attitude more than we could. But what's, what strikes me about this passage is just how strange it is that God is saying, I'm calling to my own people, calling them into intimacy with me, and they're too busy being holy to be drawn to me. They're too busy getting their life in order and living the life they think they should live to actually respond to my call. And these people don't even know I exist, and yet they keep running into relationship with me. I'm found by those who did not seek me. 
And then I looked at the gospel text. The gospel text this week is the story of Legion, the man, remember, who's in the tombs, who cannot be bound. He continually breaks the chains. And then Jesus shows up on the shore, and out of this man comes the voice of the demons, and they say, don't torture us. You remember the story? And Jesus heals him. He sends all of these demons into this herd of swine, and they run off the cliff. And what's strange about it, about this story, is that as soon as Jesus heals this man, do you remember what the people of his city do? The text says they are very afraid, and they drive Jesus away. Leave our country. Now, that's, that's odd. Here's Jesus, who shows up in the tombs with this man they've never been able to heal. They've never even been able to imprison him, much less heal him. Jesus heals him in an instant, and their response is not, Thank you, Jesus. It's get out of here. Get out of here. What an odd response. But it gets even stranger because at this point, the man who had been legion falls at Jesus' feet and says, thank you for healing me. I want to follow you. And you know what Jesus says? No, you can't. Go home. Go back and live with the people who don't want me here. They drive Jesus out then he drives that man back to those very same people. When's the last time you heard an evangelism sermon that ended with an altar call that said, some of you today want to know the Lord? No, you're not allowed to. (laughs) Right? Imagine what would happen if if, if Pastor Brent tried that trick on you. Raise your hand if you want to know the Lord this morning. All right, put them down because you can't. You're going to have to wait. (laughs) But Jesus does this over and over again where people ask to follow him, and he tells them, no. No, you can't follow me. And then sends this man back into the very center of unbelief that's driving Jesus away in the first place. That is awkward. That is strange. That's anything but linear and grid-like. And then I notice Psalm 42. Let's read this together quickly. This is the psalm for for the day. As the deer longs for the water brook, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul is a thirst for God, a thirst for the living God. When shall I come to appear before the presence of God? All of this sounds rather straightforward. Here's someone who delights in God and desires God, and then my tears have been my food day and night, while all day long they say to me, where now is your God? I pour out my soul when I think on these things. How I went with the multitude and led them into the house of God with the voice of praise and thanksgiving among those who keep holy day. Why are you so full of heaviness, O my soul? Now this sounds like two different people talking. You've got on the one hand the person who's saying, I desire God, I'm thirsty for God, I I want to be in the presence of God, and I go into the presence of God with the people of God rejoicing. And then the other person is saying, my tears are my food and drink day and night, and my soul is crushed under the weight of the absence of God. But both of these are the words of one prayer. At the same time, I desire God, and I come into the presence of God with rejoicing, and I am weeping because God has abandoned me, and I'm crushed by the sense of loneliness. Both are true at the same time. That's what a life of faith really looks like. When you, when you push past all the veneers. That at the same time, I'm rejoicing in the blessing and the nearness of God and lamenting the absence of God and my brokenness in that absence. At the same time. On the one hand, 
Everything is flourishing and full of life. And on the other hand, in this dimension of my life, it's darkness and cold. This relationship seems to be right. It seems to be full of the life of God. And this relationship is dark and threatened with all kinds of poison. Both are true at the same time. That's not mappable. How do you say all of that at once? How do you name all of that at once in ways that make sense? Or think about the story of Elijah. This is another text for the day. You remember the prophet Elijah? He has had this dramatic showdown with the prophets of Baal, and God has shown up and vindicated him. Fire has come down from heaven and consumed the offering. And then the aftermath of that great victory, Israel says, God, he is God. But then Jezebel says to Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And he runs into the wilderness afraid. And again, you get this sense in which that's not how the story's supposed to go. The movie ends right when God says, I vindicate you. It doesn't continue into the part of, now that you've won this great victory, your life is in danger. But that's what happens with Elijah. He runs into the wilderness. He's alone. It says he lies down under a broom tree and says, I am ready to die. No one ever tells you about this part of the Christian life, right? That after some great blessing, what comes immediately afterward is this sense of abandonment and, and overwhelmed, overwhelming loneliness. And the angel keeps waking him up and say, eat and drink, you've got a long journey ahead of you. And finally he gets up, he eats and drinks, and he travels for 40 days, and he goes back to Mount Sinai, back to the very place where this story with Israel started. Not just Elijah's personal story, the story of Israel. And he goes into a cave on that mountain, and God says, what are you doing here? And I love Elijah's response. He says, I'm here because I have been zealous for my God, and I alone am faithful. Anybody else want to witness to that? You feel like you're in a cave on the mountain, and God's like, what are you doing here? Well, God, I'm here because I've been serving you well, and I'm the only one serving you well. And look where it got me. Right? And then this is what leads to the story We've all heard so many times, he, the, the, the word of the Lord says, stand out on the mountain and the Lord will pass by. And so the prophet steps out on, the, on Mount Sinai, the place where all of this starts with Israel, and there is a great wind that shatters the rocks, and then an earthquake, and then a fire. And each time it says, but the Lord was not in the wind, the Lord was not in the earthquake, the Lord was not in the fire. All of the things that happened at Sinai, in the beginning there was a wind there was an earthquake, there was fire, and the Lord was in it. But now, Elijah's on the same mountain, and there's an earthquake, a wind, a fire, and the Lord is not in it. And then we get what the King James calls the still, small voice, which is probably better translated as absolute silence. Absolute silence. And the way you always hear this text taught or preached is that God shows up and he shows Elijah that, that Elijah really does belong, that Elijah really is in the center of God's will, that Elijah can trust that what God is doing, that that still, small voice calms him. But that's not what the story actually says. Do you know what the story actually says? So God passes by in this silence, and then he asks the question again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I'm here because I have been zealous for the Lord my God and I alone am faithful. He says exactly the same thing he had said before he encountered God in this way. The point of the story is God shows up for Elijah and it doesn't change Elijah's perspective at all. Now no one ever preaches about this. 
No one ever tells you, let me lay hands on you. Let me anoint you with this oil that I have from an olive tree in Israel. And I'm, I'm going to lay hands on you. You're going to fall out in the spirit. And when you wake up, nothing's going to be different at all. No one tells you that. But the reality is, you can have dynamic experiences of God, dreams and visions and prophetic words, and it doesn't really change the way you feel. I don't know how to map that. I don't know how to make sense of it exactly. Sometimes there are breakthrough moments that really seem to change things, and sometimes those breakthrough moments come and they don't seem to change anything at all. So what do we do? What do we do with that? I suppose you could be frightened by it or angered by it because one of the things it certainly means is that we're never in control and we never have the perfect interpretation of what's happening in our lives or anyone else's life. We, we could, I think, be annoyed by that. But what I would want to suggest is what if, what if instead of, of resisting it, what if instead of being angry that it's not simple and not mappable, what if we just leaned into that a bit and accepted it as a gift in some way? This, this is exactly what I think Paul does, the Apostle Paul, who I think, as well as anyone ever has, understood this, the awkwardness and the strangeness of the way God works in our life. And instead of resisting it, he embraced it as this engulfing mystery of God. And I, I think we learned three lessons from Paul. We're going to read a text together in just a moment. I think we learned three ways that Paul responds to this, this kind of awkwardness and bizarre complexity of the Christian life. The first is that our judgments are always only provisional. That we have to make judgments about ourselves and about other people, but we have to make those judgments knowing that it's not the last word. That there is one who judges us, and that is Christ, and we just make judgments that are open to his judgment. We have to make a call. We have to say, it seems to me this is true, but I know one who knows the truth, and when he speaks, I'll give up my judgment. I, th I think there's a disease right at the heart of our culture that we trust our opinions too much. Now, we all have opinions, and we have to have opinions. Part of being human is to have opinions, but we think our opinions are actually trustworthy. But they aren't. Listen, your opinions and my opinions are just that. They're opinions. They're like kind of... Physical responses, they, they spring up out of us. We don't know where from, but we shouldn't trust them too much. We have to say, this is what it seems like to me. This Catholic philosopher, Gabriel Marcel, has this wonderful distinction between opinions and persuasions or convictions. And he says, opinions are these seeming judgments. It seems to me that, that then get named as, I know that. He says, all you have to do is look at politics to see what opinions are. When people move too quickly from, it seems to me that this is true, to, I know it's true, that's, that's the problem, right at the heart of the way we're living in this world. Like that, that's, that's what makes Facebook such a dangerous space. That's what makes family reunions such a toxic environment when you try to talk about religion or politics or sexuality, because people are way too fast to trust their own opinions, and one of the things about the Christian life is we know we have opinions, but we don't trust them. 
we, we say, hey, for whatever reason, it seems like this is true to me. But there's one who knows the truth. And I'm going to hold my opinion up for judgment. Lord, here's what I think is true. Help me see the truth. Can you imagine what would happen if we all lived with that kind of humility? We're, we're, we're not pretending not to think what we think. We just don't trust what we think too much. I think this, but I don't know the truth and I don't have the final word. There is one who does. And one of the things we're going to see in this text we read from Paul is this continuing offering up to the judgment of God. I'm not afraid to voice my opinion. I just have to know it's my opinion. And this is what I see. And now, Lord, judge it. Make it right. I make a provisional judgment. The second thing we see is that there is this confidence, this trust in the unbreakable goodness, the relentless love, and the infinite creativity of God. One of the reasons you can trust God's judgment over your judgment is that God is good, God is wise, and God will get God's will done in time. And when you know that, I mean, know that in your bones, you don't have to be afraid. That when all is said and done, the one who gets the last word is the one who loves us into being and holds us in being in that love. How could I be afraid when the one who has the last word about me and about you and about everything is the one who is infinitely, infinitely creative and loving? What could I possibly fear? And then finally, what we see in Paul, I think, is this readiness to throw ourselves into the work of sharing with God in bringing this goodness to bear in the world, taking some responsibility for what's happening in the world now. So we make provisional judgments, we trust the infinite creativity and goodness of God, and then we throw ourselves into the work of bringing that hope to bear in the world so our neighbors and our enemies and strangers can sense some of that peace that God offers us in the midst of all this brokenness and complexity. So with that said, let's look at this text. Romans 10 and 11. Romans 9 to 11 are the, are the parts of Romans that Protestants typically have avoided. For the most part. Like we love reading Romans 1 to 8. And then we get to this Romans 9 to 11 stuff. At least Protestants in my tradition. Because this is all, you know, Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. If I make some vessels to wrath to destroy them, what is that to you? God is the potter, you're the clay. And we're all like, eh, I don't think so. We'll leave that to the Calvinists. Right? So like, we'll just give them that portion of Scripture. And so we, and we just kind of skip a, lot, a large portion of Romans 9 to 11, or we read it as something different from Romans 1 to 8 at least. It seems like its own kind of treatise. But what I, what I, wanted, what I would want to argue if we had you know, six or seven hours, and it is Father's Day, maybe I should indulge myself, <laughs> is, is that actually Paul is... Paul is doing something astounding in Romans 9 to 11, and that is he's trying to trace the untraceable ways of God. And what he essentially does is he overwhelms you with the complexity of it. That Paul essentially starts drawing all of these moves he sees God is making until you're finally like, stop it, Paul, it's too much. Because he's trying to impress upon us this way in which we have to ultimately trust that God's ways are not our ways, not because God isn't good, and we thought he was, but because God's goodness is too much for us to take in. 
And so all of those frightening texts about Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated and vessels of wrath fit for destruction, Paul actually is up to something very hopeful in grappling with these texts. We're not going to read all of them, but we are going to jump in in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which I think makes this point remarkably well for us. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. And the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Now, this is one of those verses that we've, we've had given to us as if, it's, as if it's neat and linear. You do this, God does that. You confess, you believe, you're forgiven, you're saved. But that's not at all what Paul is doing here. For one thing, the salvation that Paul is talking about here is not something that's given at the moment of belief but something that the moment of belief opens you up toward. We know this because later in this letter, in a passage we're not going to read this morning, he says, now is your salvation nearer than when you believed. Now in the little child cutout puzzle that we've we've received, it's confess, believe, you're saved. And so we do things, we ask like, how many people got saved at that event? And Paul is in heaven somewhere like groaning. Because that's not at all how he thinks about the relationship between believing and salvation. It, there's just, it doesn't relate like that for him. Those that endure to the end shall be saved. Your salvation is kept in the kingdom for you. We press toward the salvation that's been offered us. So we believe toward salvation. We don't believe in, and then own it. That's why all of those arguments about can you lose your salvation are misguided because you don't own it. You don't have it to lose. It's something that's ahead of you. Right? So Paul is saying, if you confess, if you believe, you shall be saved. God won't let you be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then he says, let's think about this a bit. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim? You see, he's just taking one step back. He's saying, all right, if you, if you hear and believe, well, then how did you hear? Well, somebody told you. Well, how did they know to tell you? Well, somebody had to send them, right? How do they believe in one whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, my guess is you've always heard this, again, as pretty straightforward and neat. That God calls people to proclaim the gospel because When the gospel is proclaimed, people hear it, and when they hear it, they believe it. When they believe it, they confess it. When they confess it, they are saved. Right? One, two, three, four, five, six, Yahtzee. Right? Like, you're there. But notice what Paul does. Not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what what is heard comes through the word of Christ. And almost always we stop right there. Because we like our puzzle. Notice Paul's next question. But I ask, have they not heard? For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. You realize this whole passage about confessing and believing and being sent and hearing the gospel, Paul sets it up to tell you it doesn't work that way? 
Don't throw stones at me. As the preachers say, this isn't me, this is the Bible. He, he sets it up to say, it doesn't work like that. Because Israel heard. Over and over and over and over, God sends prophets to Israel. And they don't believe. They understood. They heard. They had prophets sent to them, but they didn't believe. And then these people who were not seeking God found him. Now that's disorienting. Because you and I are good people. That's why we're here this morning. We're we're church-going people. We're people who hit all of the right notes. At least most of us are. Some of you aren't, let's be honest. (laughs) You're here because it's Father's Day or... Or you're so hungover from last night, you didn't even know you were coming to church this morning, right? So I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, but, but seriously, this is disorienting. This is disorienting. What do you mean, Paul? And then he just, he just keeps making it worse. That's the thing about prophets. Like, it gets bad, and you complain, and then they just tighten the ratchet more. Isaiah is bold to say, I have found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And then he asks another question. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? So he says, all right, so we've got the situation. The Gentiles have stumbled into relationship with God, and Israel has rebelled and turned away from God. So does that mean God loves Gentiles and not Jews? Not quite. By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. Here's another scripture that we read today. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine reply to him? I have kept For myself, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Here's what Paul is doing. That Israel for so long thought they were the chosen people of God. And then the moment of truth came and they rejected Christ. And these Gentiles who they thought were rejected embraced him. But now it looks like we've just shifted from Israel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have just replaced Israel. But Paul says, not so quick. Not so quick, because God doesn't abandon what he starts work with. And just like there was a case where during Elijah's day there were 7,000 faithful Elijah knew nothing about, just so in this day there are all kinds of faithful Jews that you know nothing about. And so what Paul is doing is he's telling you, don't trust your judgment too much. Elijah, you are alone in a cave and you think you're the only faithful prophet. But there are 7,000 others who are being faithful, and you don't know anything about it. That's why we have to be careful when we say things like the church. What we really mean are some people I know who call themselves Christians, because we don't know what's happening in the church. There are always ways in which God is keeping his faithfulness, and God's people are responding faithfully that I know nothing about. And I need to be humble enough to recognize just because I don't see what I want to see right in front of me doesn't mean it's not happening somewhere. Right? It's, not, it's, it's happening somewhere. And so Paul is saying, don't trust your, your judgment too much. So then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Verse 11. So I ask, 
He's talking about Israel. Have I asked, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their stumbling means riches for the world, and if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. Now, here's the logic. What Paul is saying is God calls Israel out of all the nations of the earth, and you know why he does it? Because he loves the Gentiles. And their unfaithfulness is what leads to the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, hear me closely because this is hard to map. He calls these people out. Their calling is to serve as priests and kings for all the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth. But they fail. But because God is God, their failure still brings about their salvation. Now, now this is going to hit some of us as bad news. Those of us who are good at what we do. Those of us who think of ourselves as faithful. But those of us who don't feel that we're good at what we do. And don't feel like we're that faithful. This is good news. Right? It is. Because it means, hear hear me, it means God's salvation in your life doesn't ride on the perfection of my ministry. That if I am faithful and I follow closely the will of the Lord, then I participate in one way in God bringing goodness into your life. But if I fail miserably, That doesn't keep you from the salvation of God. It changes the way that I participate. But it doesn't change the fact that God is going to take you as his. So whatever I do, God can use that to contribute to your good. Now what we both want, I hope what you want, certainly what I want, is I want to be faithful. But here's the good news. Even if I'm not, it doesn't mean that he's not faithful. Even if I fail, he's not going to fail. Even if I betray my calling, he's not going to turn away from you because of my failure. That's good news. And so Paul is saying, recognize, God has brought the Gentiles in in spite of Israel's failing. But then he, he, he takes it one step deeper and he says, and he brought the Gentiles in to provoke Israel to jealousy. Why? Because he wants Israel to see, hey, wait a minute, we were the people of God. Ours were the covenants. Ours was the law. Ours was circumcision. Ours was Sinai. Ours was the, king, the, kingly, the kingly reign of David. What are you, why, why is the blessing on the Gentiles? So that what's stirred up in them will drive them back to relationship with God. Because here, here's the secret. Everything God does is for the sake of everyone. Everything he's doing with Israel is because he loves the Gentiles. And everything he does with the Gentiles is because he loves Israel. Everything that he's doing in your life is because he loves the people around you. And everything he's doing in the life of the people around you is because he loves you. Always, in everything, God is at work from every possible angle, at every possible level, to bring about his purposes in the world. That's why it's not mappable. That's why it's not neat and linear. Because it's an infinite God who, in his infinite creativity, is working at every level from every angle to bring about good in ways that fit our freedom. So that whatever I do, if I run from God, he meets me. If I run toward God, he's there for me. If I rebel, he uses my hard heart to turn others to him. 
And if I let my heart be broken and return to him, he provokes others to jealousy by my repentance. Whatever I do, he takes up what I've done and makes it redemptively good for my neighbor. That's why I don't have to be afraid. I'm almost done. So do not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. Man, I want to get that tattooed right here on my head. (laughs) Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Listen, I think 100% of our problems come from we think we know more than we do. Don't try to have all the answers. Do not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved. Out of, it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel... They, the the Israelites, are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If God starts to work on something, he's never going to give up on it. He doesn't walk away from projects. He doesn't abandon the work. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. Israel fails, that leads to your inclusion. So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. So he delivers Israel out of Egypt so Pharaoh will see that he's God. He loves Jacob so that Esau will recognize he's God. He loves Jacob because he loves Esau. He delivers Israel because he loves Pharaoh. Everything God does, it looks in our life like this is judgment and this is mercy. But in truth, it's all mercy. That the justice of God is the mercy of God having the right and last word. And this is why Paul ends by saying, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him to receive one in return? Hear me. There's nothing we can give to God that hasn't already been given to us. Not faith, not obedience, not love, There's nothing I can give to him that he hasn't already given to me. But every gift he's given to me is a gift he means to come through me to somebody else. So I end with this, and then Pastor Brent will come. Wherever you happen to be this morning, I don't know how you're making sense of your life, how you're making sense of your your standing with God or your your calling, how you're making sense of macro-level issues in the world. What I I hear the Lord saying to us is, don't trust your wisdom, trust mine. And don't trust your judgments, trust mine. And know that I'm at work in this world in ways that you could not possibly track. And what seems like failure is going to result in salvation. And what I, all of this blessing is just to provoke these other people to come into it. And everything God is doing is for the sake of your neighbor. And everything God's doing in your neighbor's life is for your sake. And when all is said and done, when all is said and done, we're going to say, 
exactly what Paul says. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God's ways are unreadable because they're too good for us to imagine. They're unreadable, not because he's lost control, not because this world is so broken it can't be repaired. They're unreadable because God's goodness is unimaginably deep and wide. And I can trust that, and you can trust that. Let me pray, and then pastor come. Lord, I pray that you do give us ears to hear. Open our hearts to trust your judgments, and then let us throw ourselves with abandon into the work of sharing this hope with the world. We do not have to be afraid. God is good. Our God is good. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.